Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Couple of yeah. new tunes as well. The, yeah, wind, the Winding River. Uh, that's right, the Winding River. That's that's uh, a marriage that I recorded with Mick O'Brien and Piper. There's a couple of pipe 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 fiddle duets on it. And uh, there's another one there, an interesting one, Diminished Swing. Mm. It's a kind of a, a jazz tune that I recorded with Richie Buckley and a few other jazz musicians. Mm. 
I've been writing in different styles, and it's, so I think it's an interesting album because uh, there's hardly any few tracks alike, if you like, you know. Yeah, yeah. It seems it seems to be uh, the Dubliners as well that you did kind of have a huge depth to you. Whereas, like, I suppose that people see it as traditional music, but it, it seems to have all sorts of traditions in there. That's right. There's English and Scottish and Irish and a bit of bluegrass fiddling that I introduced myself over over the years and the last were quite happy with. So uh, yeah, there's quite a cross section of different different influences there. You know, it does seem that you were very different. Like uh, you know, a, a gulf of different styles of music, but also different personalities, I guess. Oh, yeah, personality-wise, we were we were five very different individuals who somehow, when we made music together, we became that's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, to say we were more than the sum of the individual mm. parts. But uh, that was very much the case in, in, the, in the group. Just a certain certain magical quality when we were all walking together doing our own thing. I can remember in the old days when Luke came in one night and said, have a great new song, we'll maybe do it tonight. And just a song called The Black Velvet Band. Uh, but the way we worked then, Luke just sang a bit in the dressing room and said, ah, oh, yeah, we'll have go with that. Then we'd be on the stage half an hour later doing it for the first time without having worked out any particular arrangement. But uh, it was just a, a natural thing with us, you know, walking together like that when we and the buskers as much as anything else. Yeah. But uh, we, we were a kind of a rough and ready group. We, we just did our own thing, and our attitude was, this is what we do, and to take us or leave us for the first time. You made not of endless uh, TV appearances, but I suppose the two that would stand out for for everybody uh, would be the Seven Drunken Nights uh, back in was sixty seven or something. Oh, sixty seven. That's right. Uh, that was the that was the big hit. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the, we got that song originally from a show for Bohaney, George O'Haney, the channel singer from Connemara, and when we went to record an album. Our first album with Major Minor Records in London. Uh, that was, we just recorded that as another, just another track, an album track. And uh, until the manager we had at the time, Phil Solomon, he somehow saw the potential in it. And as soon as he heard that, that particular song, he said, oh, that's, that's going to be your single. Uh, just to attract people's attention and so so different in sound from what was what would normally be in the, the, the English top ten at the at that time, you know, or any time for that. And then when you returned later with the with the Pogues, was that was that another surprise? Um, yeah, that, that was in 1980. That was exactly 20, 20 years later, actually. Yeah. Uh, we'd met the Pogues a few years before recording, but we, we'd met them at a, a folk festival in Vienna, mm. and uh, got on very well with them. They reminded us of, of uh, our, our wild days ourselves 20, 20 years later. Uh, and uh, we just uh, had a good rapport with them and when it came to recording our 25 year album um, Eamon Cameron Lars Mercian he was producing it for us and, and he said what about doing a what about doing a, a song with the Pogues mm. and uh, came up with it just rang them up and they were already they were already recording an album in a studio in London so we just flew over there one day and we had it recorded in a couple of hours the, the Irish Rover without any big 
rehearsals or arrangements or anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what, uh, was the, what was the kind of a, a, a response to you actually turning up in, in the studio? I mean, there was uh, stories told about when the Furies and Davy Arthur turned up there, whatever, that they were so different to the to the young pop stars around this that people were looking at them as if they were uh, aliens. <laughs> How did you get on? Yeah, we're, we're, we're quite different from, from uh, anything else that was on it. I think that was part of the attraction, you know, just uh, there's a certain wildness and, and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, just different, but but yet very musical and appealing in, in, a, in a different way from, you know, the polished, the polished pop songs of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, uh, just a little Ronnie quick, we were in the studio in 87, 20 years after the first time and um, a, young, a young assistant floor manager in the, in the studio he says to Ronnie, would, uh, would you like me to show you around the building and the studios? Mm. And Ronnie said, I was here before you were born so <laughs> 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 so um, we didn't take anything too seriously but it was just a bit of crack and just enjoying the whatever came up during those years, you know, mm-hmm. bit of an adventure. Uh, I think Ronnie, Ronnie described it very well one time when, when we were celebrating our 25 years, somebody asked him, what, what, what has it been like, Ronnie? And Ronnie says, it was like a party that went on for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> you were picked up by an awful lot of, of uh, I suppose, Dublin intelligentsia as well, like... Uh, I suppose from uh, Paddy Kavanagh through to Phil Coulter was was that? Uh, can you take us through some of those experiences? Yeah, well, yeah, there, there was a great, there was a great uh, vibe around us. Well, like Paddy Kavanagh, the name of, uh, uh, no, I was going to say the name of Freydon, uh, Sean of Freydon, and uh, Brendan Bean was up and around. Bernie had met Brendan Bean a few times. I said, Ronnie. And you could go into McDade's pub and have an afternoon and you'd find Patrick Kavanagh there quite regularly. And uh, it was on one of those occasions, actually, because uh, Patrick came over to Luke and he said, uh, you're the one to sing this song of mine, Raglan Road, and handed mm-hmm. the, the, the handwritten version of it in the back of a jaffer. Mm-hmm. And uh, said, you're the one for this, this song, Luke, and the air is gone today. And that's the way Luke where we came across uh, Raglan Road, for example, you know. Mm-hmm. And was 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 the relationship with Phil Coulter something similar? Uh, Phil, Phil Coulter came a good few years later. That came around uh, the early 70s, I think it was. Mm-hmm. We were managed at the time by Noel Pearson. And uh, Phil Coulter had done some stuff with Noel, uh, some, musical, some musical stuff, uh, Joseph and his amazing colour dream coat was wonderful. Jesus Christ superstar. I think Phil had conducted the orchestra for some of those. So and around that time we were it left and we were we were uh, starting a new album and, and uh, Noah Pierce suggested Phil Coulter. And it worked out very well. He, he introduced some of his own to written like that. Johnny Galdani was another one and um, yeah, there was quite quite a number of songs he, he, he brought along, and uh, we just hit it off musically. We were we were singing from the same hymn sheet as it were, and uh, still still good friends with with Phil after all these years. Actually, I, I played. He was doing a, a gig in, in St Patrick's Cathedral there 
a couple of months ago and he rang me up to see what I come in and do a guest spot for them. And I, I'd written a piece called St. Patrick's Cathedral. We did it together in the, in the cathedral, um, piano, piano and fiddle. And so, so, yeah, it's been a bit of an adventure. I've been an adventure up with all these great people over the years, you know. Recall not, not, not wanting to drag it all back to Cork, but do you remember playing uh, in Parky Cui for the Shames of Cushley? I think it was 1978, maybe. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah there was, um, yeah, they were, they, were, they were great events. It was a great, great atmosphere with the whole, the whole football stadium filled up. And uh, I remember Charlie Hyde was on one of them. Charlie Hyde was in the office. came up and we did the Mondo together. Uh, uh, there was another occasion when we were doing it must have been after 87 88 maybe mm-hmm. uh, I know we flew back from from Parky Creeve to to play with uh, U2 as a support act to U2 and Crow Park mm-hmm. uh, one, one, two, gig, two gigs one after the other in the both stadiums mm-hmm. yeah I nearly forgot about those years now that you mentioned it did you have a, a preference for the the big venues or, or for the more intimate ones? I, I I feel like playing in small small venues, maybe small theatres, and it's good for them around the country now. You know, two and three hundred seaters. I, I I love the intimate atmosphere in places like that. But um, our, our, after seven drunken nights, of course, we were playing in the likes of the Albert Hall in London. Yes. Um, it's uh, just just to. Oh yeah, there was a Barney story about that. You might have heard some of these stories before, but Barney couldn't remember the name of the Albert Hall. He got into a taxi in London. The big roughly place near, you know. Yeah, but he found his way eventually anyway. <laughs> yeah, mind you, he was late. He was late for town check, so he didn't realize the enormity of the place until he was announcing his banjo solo and. The advertisement is five or six tiers of different balconies right up to the roof. And as he saw them, he's looking up and up and up, and eventually says, Oh my Jesus. He made a whisper all over the. Yeah. Um, ah, you know, loads of stories like that, you know. I saw in the, the, the late, late special that the people seem to have a great grow for Barney. I mean, he's probably not the most vocal of the, the group, but I don't know what it was. People just had a. It was almost like a. A teddy bear for the group. Some people just loved him, you know. <laughs> he was. Uh, he had. A, he lived in a kind of a parallel universe to the rest of us. He had a special way of expressing himself. Very funny at times. We used to call it some of the things he come out with. We used to call them Barneyisms, you know. <laughs> like, like he was in the hospital one time, and I rang him up to see had they done any tests this particular day. And he said, "Oh yeah, they did the brain scan this morning." Found nothing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, things like that. Or another another day, he comes into us and he says, "Just heard in the news there, lads, 
that the oldest woman in the world is still alive. <laughs> And then you make sense of that. <laughs> but he, he had a way of he had a way of um, twisting words that, that sounded strange in the beginning, but that it was some sort of uh, warped logic at the back of them, you know. And I remember one time himself and another musician, Michael Howard and myself, we were doing a spot for this particular promoter in the National Concert Hall and uh, We'd done a couple of charity gigs for this guy before, but there was a fee involved this, on this occasion, but Bernie wasn't aware of that until it suddenly occurred to him to ask me when we were making our way out to the microphone. He said, by the way, John, is this another charity gig or is it feasible? There's <laughs> 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 uh, um, another time we're in, in, well, the first time we went to Australia, was the CAs on a tour. And uh, we met at the airport with a friend, a friend of Barney's from home. And uh, Barney says, God, it's very, very warm, very hot over here. And his friend said, Barney, this is nothing. It's going to be 100 degrees in the shade at lunchtime. And Barney says, 100 degrees in the shade. He said, Jesus, I'm going to stay out of the shade. <laughs> <laughs> That's gorgeous. That's really good. Ah, yeah, he, was, he was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but there was a kind of a logic in it. There, there was another time where I was sitting beside him on a flight to London. It was very turbulent now. We'd been thrown all over the place. And he's a nervous flyer at the best of times. And I was trying to calm him down. I said, listen, Barney, try and look at it philosophically. You're not going to go to your numbers up and that's it. And he looks back at me and he says, what, supposing the pilot's number is up? <laughs> He was very sharp, was he? I know, he was, yeah. It's amazing some of the things he can do, which, you know. Yeah. But uh, very funny. He, he was stopped for, and the very, I think the breathalyzer came out, it must be 40 years ago, but he was stopped for a breathalyzer test shortly after the, hmm. the thing was introduced. And uh, he was pulled in by the, the guards and he went, said, Barney, they recognized him, Barney, were you drinking tonight? And you were weaving a bit there, coming along the road. So Bernie says, yeah, I was at a session in town, I had nine or ten points. And the guy is shocked by this admission. He said, nine or ten points, will you blow into this bag? And Barney says, do you not believe me? <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's a rare, a rare character, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, there, I suppose you've kind of tipped on it there. There, there was a lot of uh, of drink, not, I suppose, not just with the Dubliners, but there, for for the entire of Irish culture and, and certainly rock and roll for for generations. Yeah. Uh, some of you survived it, and some didn't. Uh, were you? Was it a thing? I suppose that you just had to accept people as they were at the time, or? Uh, pretty much. So drink was part and parcel of, of the entertainment business in general, and if you're going to meet somebody else, you met them in a pub. Yeah. So it's part parcel of the thing. Um, the, the lads were good in general. They, 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 they were good at controlling it. If there was a gig, if we were free on a, an afternoon in a hotel and a gig coming up that night, they were all kind of watching each other if, if there was a bit of a session going on, you know. Be a case of somebody would say, "No, I think uh, I think we have enough now, lads. You know, there's a gig tonight. They have to do a good job." And there was always a, uh, an awareness of. You know, having a professional approach to a gig, so seldom interfered with a gig. Maybe once or twice, but uh, they all had their own. They all had their own regime of 
controllers, you know, mm-hmm. for whenever it was a gig coming up. But uh, very much part and parcel of the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no, there was another Barney story in my life. Uh, he was mm-hmm. heading home from a gig in town one night, and uh, he spotted the squad car in the rear view mirror. The squad car was trailing him all the way out by Fairview and into Tom Turf. And um, Barney, rather than trying to throw them off the centre, he what did he do? He, he pulled into Clontarf Garda Station mm. and uh, went into the sergeant on duty. And the sergeant knew him, of course, said, well, Barney, what can I do for you? And Barney says, well, I had a couple of points there in town, uh, sergeant, and I might have had one too many. Could I leave the keys to the car here to the morning and I'll get a taxi home? So the boys are of the squad car, what's going on here? And the sergeant says, it's okay, lads, calm down now. Barney McKenna, sensible man, wants to leave the keys to the car here tomorrow. the morning. He thinks he might have one too many. And then, then the sergeant says, just so that if you're, if you're not too busy, maybe you give him a lift home. He's got a lift home with the squad car. <laughs> so, only, only Barney. Get away with it, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you say, anyone else would have been in, spent the night uh, in jail, not out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I suppose you're you're also one of the the like. There's a bit of a folk revival going on uh, at the moment. Uh, the gloaming, Lancome, the High Kings, etc. And yeah. you're one of the uh, the bands that constantly gets uh, name checked. Are you, uh, is that something that are you suppose are you glad to see the the, the revival that there seems to be generations of, of Irish music, and are you glad I to get it, name checked? Ah, it's, it's 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 great to see that. And I've done gigs with some of them, whether the likes of Dick and O'Rourke and Jan Hanserton mm. and uh, Dick, uh, Demo, uh, Damien Dempsey. Mm-hmm. I did a couple of gigs with Zoe Conway. You know, Zoe oh, Conway yeah, yeah. there. And uh, Ralph McTell, the man who wrote the streets of London, I've been friends with all these people over the years, and it's nice to get together now and now and then and, and uh, play a few tunes together, you know. Yeah. Are you feeling? I suppose are you feeling trapped with the lockdown that you can't get out to? It, it doesn't bother me too much. I'd, I'd be doing a few gigs and promoting this album. I'm doing some some gigs around the place if if things were back to normal, but. Um, I'm cocooning for the five weeks or so, uh, which is not that strange to me because, you know, over the years in between Dubliners too, in effect I'd be cocooning then because uh, I might start out of the house for, for for a week or two and I'd be just pottering around doing my own thing, a bit of gardening and a bit of cooking and playing the fiddle and a bit of wood carving and I had a whole lot of hobby to that writing poetry and Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, you know. So it's not that strange a feeling after all, you know. Mm-hmm. The the wood carving. I mean, you've uh, you've taken that to a kind of very high artistic level as well. Is that is it an enjoyable experience apart from being creative? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very creative thing. And, and uh, I have a, a poem here. I, I go to wood carving classes occasionally. Mm-hmm. There's a friend of mine, Terry O'Brien, he's a master carver at the music workshop up in Drada. And uh, I go up there maybe yeah, every two or three months, I go up there and have a, have a, have a day with some other friends and clients of his. And uh, 
it's, it's um, very relaxing, you know, taking your mind off everything and just concentrating on carving something out of a piece of wood. It's, it's a pretty rewarding kind of a, uh, a hobby. Mm-hmm. Bring you back to the album. Uh, could you uh, tell us about the, the title, Flirting Fiddles? Flirting Fiddles, yeah. I was working on... Um, this particular tune, I, 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 I did originally called it the Happy Tune, and on a, a fiddle duet with a very good friend of mine, Jane Kirk. She's a, an English fiddle player, uh, and she's living in Copenhagen. I met her at a, a folk festival over in Denmark. And uh, I was just working out an arrangement with this particular tune, and I played, I played a, a phrase, and she walked it back to me, and came like a call and an answer a conversation between the, the fiddles mm-hmm. and uh, when, when you listen to it I play a phrase and she comes back with her tenacious reply as it were mm-hmm. and uh, I renamed it then when I walked out this arrangement with her called it Flirting Fiddles so we used that as the title for the album as well it kind of reflects the fact that I've been flirting with different fiddle styles over the years you know mm-hmm. from Rock to classical to swing and bluegrass and different, different styles, you know. success
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.